Welcome to SKUcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs in the promotional products industry. SKUcast shines a light on our industry's best work, features maverick personalities, and discusses what's really involved in running a modern promotional products business. SKUcast is the official podcast of Common SKU. Those behaviors, no like, trust, try, buy, repeat, refer, are, you know, I, I, I kind of, I've been talking about the last few years that I think our job as marketers is not to create or drive demand, it's to organize behavior. And those seven behaviors all have different questions and objectives. I mean, a lot of people refer to them as stages, but, you know, we as business owners, we as marketers need to be thinking about how do we guide people on those seven stages or those seven behaviors, knowing that they actually want to participate in them. How do we intentionally build campaigns and, and processes and uh, initiatives to make sure that we are actually addressing them? John Jantz, the founder of Duct Tape Marketing, has been called the Peter Drucker of small business tactics. He's the author of numerous books about sales, marketing, and entrepreneurship, and his books have been translated into 14 languages. Many of us have read the book Duct Tape Marketing. He also wrote The Referral Engine, SEO for Growth, and more. His new book is titled The Self-Reliant Entrepreneur. This past weekend, John tweeted this, quote, Branded tchotchkes don't further your conversations with prospects, whereas great sales materials do. And he linked to an article titled The Role of Sales Materials in a Digital World. Mark Graham, CommonSkew's president and chief branding officer, ever vigilant as he is, saw the tweet, disagreed with John on Twitter, and then, as Mark does, invited John to join us today on the SKUcast to talk about it. John, being a great sport, was gracious and wanted to clarify what he meant as it really was a statement taken slightly out of context. All of this led to a great discussion around the efficacy of product, then segued into the seven phases of the customer's journey and ended at the purpose of the intentional entrepreneur. Before we get into our conversation with John, a quick housekeeping note. SKU Camp signups have taken off like a rocket. It's always our fastest selling event. If you don't know what I'm talking about, SKU Camp is the industry's only business boot camp experience. A few days of high impact lessons taught by people in the trenches, plus a few outside experts. It's a deep dive into topics many people don't talk about in our business, including sales growth values, compensation plans, succession planning, and much more. And this year, we have a lineup of speakers from some of the most intriguing brands in the business. If you're curious to learn more, visit skewcamp.com. If you're on the fence about it, I encourage you to decide quickly as tickets really are moving fast. Hope to see you there in Austin, Texas, September 13th through the 16th at SKUcamp. Again, that's skewcamp.com. This episode is brought to you by CommonSkew the platform that powers your connected workflow, enabling you to process more orders and dramatically grow your sales. You can learn more or you can start your free trial now at commonskew.com. Now here's our conversation with author, consultant, and speaker, John Jans. So John, it's a great pleasure to have you on the SKUcast here today. Thank you for taking some of your valuable time to be with us here today. My pleasure. I love to talk about this stuff. All right. So on the weekend, I opened up my Twitter feed and I saw a tweet that said, branded tchotchkes don't further your conversations with prospects, whereas great sales materials do. And I believe that was you, John, that had tweeted that. And I I thought it would be an interesting way to kick off the episode to talk a little bit about your background 
And then what it is that you had in mind when you had written that tweet about the value of promotional tchotchkes. You bet. Well, in a lot of ways, that obviously a tweet is, you know, 140 characters. So it's pretty easy to take that out of context in a you know, thousand word article or so that that was coming from. Yeah. But, but the real point of that article was just talking about how people have gotten away from valuable leave behinds of any kind, you know, in the digital age. Um, yeah. And the, even the word, use of the word chotskis, I think was, you know, is a little disparaging, you know, to sort of the, the circle of folks that, you know, just look at it as, oh, let's put our name on something and, you know, somebody will want to have that or, you know, wear that right. and not any real thought to, to, to the strategic connection to the brand. Yeah. So, so that was, I, I was really probably railing more against the people that are just doing it mindlessly, but it was also in the context of the fact that people have gotten away from anything really that's physical or you know leave behind in general because the digital age allows us to just send everything by email and so that that was really where that entire uh, kind of thrust was John, I've been a fan for years. I know we used to send your duct tape marketing book and referral engine to customers and friends. Fantastic reads. And I know we've had you as a guest on uh, Market with the well, Skewcast Book Club at one point. I'm sorry, the Comiskey Book Club at one point. But in the the tweet that you you said in the, the article that you linked to, the article's rich. The role of sales materials in a digital world, you wrote this, that with these digital marketing channels doing so much of the heavy lifting and representing your brand, do you really still need sales materials? Will a prospect really leaf through your catalog or read your brochure? And the answer to these questions is a resounding yes. Sales materials still hold an important place in the customer journey. One of the points you made was that in the article, you cited a U.S. post office study enhancing the value of mail to human response. It actually was a very sophisticated study that they had done that linked consumers' subconscious responses to three buying process phases. One was exposure. Second was memory, and the third was action. The bottom line was compared to digital, people who read print materials spend a longer time engaging with the materials. They had a greater emotional reaction to the content and were more likely to place a higher value on their product or service. How have you seen effective sales materials help build trust and create engagement with buyers, either through your customers that you've consulted with or even through your own brand? Well, one of the things that that I've discovered, and and it, you know, there's sort of this this sliding scale of, you know, the less complicated, the less, you know, price, <laughs> it, you probably, you know, the less education that you need. But obviously, if you're selling services, which are maybe complex or, you know, air, <laughs> and they might be, you know, a higher priced, you know, ten fifty thousand $50,000 type of engagement, then you not only need more education, but I think you also need to stimulate more senses. There are a heck of a lot of people that are a heck of a lot of research that suggests that that people have different learning styles. I know, for example, when, when my books come out, for whatever reason, my publishers tend to put my audio book out a couple of weeks after the print book. And I always hear from people almost immediately, you know, I only yeah. listen to audio. That's, you know, right. that's how I consume books. And so part of what I think you're doing by having uh, print sales materials is, is you are kind of reinforcing the message. You're giving people different learning styles. If if the sales cycle, for example, is longer, there is something about that idea of being able to hold on to it and take it with you on the airplane and you know just do things that people do as they are studying and kind of getting their questions answered. And so yeah. I just think there's a great great place still for that format, if you will, if we're going to call it that, to to be part of the mix. 
It's interesting, John, there's a a promotional products industry podcast called Unscripted hosted by a few friends of ours. And they were having a conversation, I think it was literally just a couple of days ago on their podcast about one of the hosts was, was deliberating whether it was a good idea to reintroduce a printed newsletter Mm. that he was going to print out and mail to his, you know, hundreds and hundreds of customers. And they were having a debate as to whether that was a good idea or not. And reading your post in terms of good sales material, it almost feels like it reinforces that being a good idea because everyone right now has got a MailChimp account or a constant contact account where they're blasting these emails out at no cost. But of course, most people are deleting them. Whereas how many people are actually receiving a printed newsletter certainly is going to come at a greater cost. What is your thinking on that with your small business clients as to whether you're seeing a movement towards a printed newsletter? I don't know that I'm seeing a movement, but but I support the idea. I think the hard thing is, as you just alluded to, you could blast out hundreds of thousands of emails at seemingly no cost. You start printing, and 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 again, you know, so no cost, so do you care what the return is as much, right? right and then yeah. you start then you start printing something and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, I spent a thousand dollars. I need to get X in return. And I think yeah. the problem is, you know, there, there's sometimes not a direct one-to-one correlation with I got this thing and I ordered something from you, yeah. or there's no attribution <laughs> to I got this thing and I ordered from you. But I think that that, you know, in addition to the fact that that you're providing a different medium, uh, you know, our mailboxes, uh, some would say, thankfully, <laughs> but are not as full as they used to be. Yeah. And so something well executed showing up in the mailbox now is actually going to going to capture that person that that, you know, I know this sounds silly, but maybe kind of longs for, you know, a little bit of that in their mailbox. Yeah. yeah. I, I was reflecting on this wine club that I was a part of a little while ago. And one of the things that I most look forward to, I mean, yes, I look forward to the wine, but what was really classy about this operation was that they had this, it was like a a printed newsletter where they talked about the wine, they talked about where it came from, they told stories about the the winemakers, and it it was printed out on this beautiful paper stock. And, And I'd read it front to back every time. And I'm thinking that if they had just sent out an email with this, like, hey, look for your wine delivery this month, I probably would have blown off the email just because it would have sat in my uh, promotions box in Gmail. So anyways, that's, I mean, that's not the promotional products industry, but it, it certainly provides fodder for that argument. Well, and I, I think you make a, a point that needs to be emphasized. If you just create the generic newsletter that doesn't really provide a lot of value, you know, doesn't, doesn't stand out, you know, you're probably, it's probably not going to get read. And I think that's a mistake a lot of people make is they get a template and they just slam something in there that looks like what everybody else is sending out. But the idea that this was well-designed, this was well thought out, this had stories that were engaging. It was, you know, it felt weighty just because of the paper. I mean, that, that's an element that you can't really gloss over. Yeah. John, you, you had mentioned that you've used used promotional t-shirts in your past book launches. Given that there's a promotional products audience here, do you want to talk about the effectiveness or lack thereof, maybe the pros and cons of having done those printed shirts and how they drove ROI for your, uh, for, for your marketing campaigns? Yeah. So I've actually used more than just shirts. My last book is called The Self-Reliant Entrepreneur. And I, and I quote, 
a great deal of the content is is taken from some mid nineteenth century authors, most notably Ralph Waldo Emerson is one that uh, people are certainly familiar with. And so for this book launch, I actually got rocks inscribed with uh, a quote that just says "insist on yourself," which was a kind of a core of of one of his uh, essays and. So I have that as well as T-shirts, and I, you know, I love doing things like that. That that can, you know, they don't. Neither one of them say the self-reliant entrepreneur on them. <laughs> they they so they in this particular case they they you know there's no call to action necessarily. What I have used them for is in in you know in the context of the book is when I send the book out to people that I'm hopeful will talk about it, will write about it, will tweet about it, will take pictures of themselves and post on Instagram. That rock and that T-shirt actually is the thing that gets them to do that. If you just send the yeah. book itself, it's like, oh, it's a nice book. But then it's like, what's this thing? <laughs> you know, and everybody loves a T-shirt. My first, you know, when I started my business, that was one of the first things I did was get T-shirts <laughs> printed right. uh, that, that ironically, 25 years ago, had a Ralph Waldo Emerson quote on them as well. <laughs> I, I think that's, the, you know, I think if you sent these T-shirts out, I, I'm not 100% sure if that would make the connection, but it's the T-shirt with the book yeah. That I think really kind of tips the scales. Yeah. And I think it's thinking more holistically about these campaigns and strategically in the sense of how they each touch each other, because they're all interconnected when they, or I should say, when they are interconnected, they have so much more power. And I'm going back to the first part of the conversation we were having about digital replacing or, or physical products replacing digital, whereas the thing, the way we need to think about it, instead of anything replacing anything, whether that's promo replacing print, print replacing digital, is thinking of this, you know, symbiotic relationship each of these components have. And I know that's a big part of your consulting through the years, John, is these connected points that we have. Because when you can really attach these to a strategic purpose and interconnect all of them, it, it, it's magic. Yeah. And I, years ago, we used to do these, uh, uh, we called them lumpy mail campaigns. Yeah. Uh, and typically there were a three-part series and we would, you know, we, we would get maybe a coffee mug or, you know, something, you know, might be just your standard kind of, you know, promotional products, you know, product, right? You know, pens, you know, coffee mugs, right? The most standard thing there is. But we would tie them to a, to a message that yeah. was about the brand or was about a product launch. And then we would, you know, tie that around a, a mailing that, you know, usually ended up involving a, a sales call. And I think that's where you can take something that people just generally get printed and put in the closet and, you know, occasionally give out to people when they come by the office or something. That's where you can take that totally generic or seemingly generic item, but put it in context that actually tells a whole story. Yeah. One of the things we can encourage all of our listeners come from the print promotional industry and some screen printers, but all of them are dealing in, in branded products of some kind. And one of the things that I don't think we ask enough of our top clients is what is your digital strategy? Right. And then proactively asking them, you know, what is their digital strategy and how and mapping products that we sell to that strategy, as opposed to either replacing it or or not even really thinking about it at all, because it, they all have a very powerful digital strategy. And it makes me wonder if we're not asking that question enough. Well, and I, I tell you another mistake that I see businesses of any kind make is a lot of times their strategy is around selling their product as opposed to solving their client's problem. Right, right. Um, and, and so first, we got to understand what that problem is. I don't think yeah. anybody wants you know, a promotional product. Yeah. What they want is the, the the response that they might get from a client or let's face it, more sales. And so I think if we start there and then and then, you know, kind of work backwards to what, you know, what problem can we promise to solve for our clients rather than what product are we selling? 
I'm, I'm, I'm have uh, John, your blog post uh, up here. And I just want to read just two or three sentences here and then, and then we'll get into a conversation about it. So the title of this section of the blog post is called continue to add value right. to quote you. When we talk about great sales materials, we're talking about materials that continue to add value. Sure. Your branded magnets, tote bags, and pens might be fun little add-ons, but how often does that tote bag end up at the bottom of someone's desk drawer and the magnet find itself relegated to the side of the office fridge? Branded tchotchkes don't further your conversations with prospects, whereas great sales materials do. And when I read that, I wholeheartedly agreed with you. This is someone who's a strong background in the industry, Bobby, you too. And I think that most people listening to this podcast would also agree with it. And what I find so interesting and just hearing your use of promotional products is that there's this difference between tchotchkes, which is just stuff that's ordered at the last minute that is there's yeah. a bit of a mismatch with the client's marketing objective. So it does end up in the bottom of the drawer at best. At worst, it's just thrown out versus the t-shirt and the rock campaign that you're talking about, which is incredibly strategic and intentional. That's not tchotchkes. That's promotional merchandise that is there to solve a, a legitimate marketing problem. I'll say one other comment here because you mentioned tote bags, that we had this fascinating conversation with, with Elizabeth Segrin, who is a staff writer at, the, at Fast Company that was talking about some of the maybe not so good sides of the promotion products industry, yet she referred to a New Yorker tote bag as being this high watermark of promotional products. And it's so true in terms of like how people will go and actively go out of their way and subscribe to the New Yorker because they can get a $6 tote bag that they walk around and they advertise the New Yorker and it shows them, you know, communicates to the outside world that they're a New Yorker subscriber. And it's just, it's so fascinating, right? Like that tote bag did not end up in the bottom of a drawer. It's ended up on your shoulder walking around Manhattan. So it's, uh, it's quite amazing how intentionality changes the perception between promotional products and tchotchkes. Well, and, and I think also one thing to note is, is the reason that that is because the, the, that tote bag is helping that person tell a story about themselves. Yep. And, and that, you know, so that's a great brand match, you know, for, for the New Yorker. But to just copy that without that ingredient, you know, you're not going to have the same success. Yeah. You know, we're all saying the same thing and, and we're using the, the you know, words intention and strategic a lot. John, you know, a lot of customers put a lot of their vendors, if you will, into a need to know basis. And so you don't really get involved, invited in the strategic part of the process early. You know, whether, do you have some advice on how we can approach customers with a more strategic sale? And I know this is a million dollar question, one yeah. of the one of the things that that we've been able to come up with is number one, be a brilliant practitioner of your own medium and train customers how they can be used. Yeah. What ways have you seen folks arrive at a more strategic point in the selling process? Well, one of the things that that I've seen people do well, and we've tried to emulate ourselves, is is we actually try to get customers involved in. It feels like they're helping us, but <laughs> they're they're really, um, you know, in a lot in a lot of ways they're helping themselves. But so, for example, when we design a, an initiative or even a course or something, we do it with them, and and what we find is we end up creating a much better end product, one that we know people, you know, there's there's a ready audience for that people are willing yeah. to use, and I think that I think that that could apply as well if you, you know, again, a lot of it takes, a lot of it comes from having a lot of trust. I mean, if they see you as a vendor, 
uh, is somebody who, you know, they just call up when they need something as opposed to somebody who's going to actually give them thoughtful ideas, thoughtful campaigns, ways to actually solve, you know, as we alluded to problems, then they're going to invite you in to have that discussion. And I think when you, when you continue to kind of nurture that type of relationship, then you, you know, you can be selling the most mundane thing, you know, on the planet and still be seen as, as an advisor. Yeah. John, switching gears a little bit here and getting into some of your, your other work, you write a lot about the customer journey and the duct tape marketing philosophy's point is that marketing is a system. Can you talk with us about the marketing hourglass and the seven distinct phases? You bet. So customer journey, the term customer journey has become, you know, really, really hot <laughs> of the last, seems like the last five or six years. You look at Google trends and, you know, it was kind of 10 years ago, it was a real, uh, you know, non-factor. And now it's just, you know, it, everybody's talking about it. So about 15 years ago, I created something I called the marketing hourglass. And it was actually a little bit of a reaction to the the tried and true marketing funnel. So if you think about the funnel, you know, get a whole bunch of people at the top, a few of them squeeze down, you know, through that thing and become customers. And what I've believe firmly is that that once you get that point where they become a customer, that's where you start over again, or that's where some of the real work should go into, you know, and the whole referral engine, you know, that entire book was about the kind of the bottom of the hourglass, meaning that, that you know, happy customer is your best source of the top of the funnel, the best source yeah. of of the lead. So you, you, that's kind of my idea behind that shape. It borrows from the funnel, but it, it, it certainly adds on the whole bottom part of that, uh, of the hourglass. So those yeah. stages are no like trust, try, buy, repeat, and refer. And I actually refer to them as behaviors because I, I, I really think that, that they represent the seven behaviors that buyers actually want to participate in with the brands and the companies that they do business with. So we all want to come to know companies who can solve our problems. And certainly once we know who they are, we're going to dig in and say, you know, do I like what they're saying? Do I like their website? Do I like their message? And then uh, obviously once we pass that barrier, we want to know, is this somebody I can trust? Have other people gotten results? Uh, do people talk about them? Do they review them? You know, do are they providing, you know, value to me before I become a customer? All those kind of trust markers. And then I, you know, I love it when I can try a company or at least try what it might be like to work with a company. And then certainly, you know, and this is a place where most marketers drop the ball. You know, once once I've convinced that you can solve my problem, I want that experience to stay just as high. You know, when I say, yes, I want to buy. And then, you know, I certainly find companies and, and products and services that I rely on that, that they do a great job. I, you know, so I go back to them. I don't, you know, I don't want to go looking for a new resource. If somebody's yeah. taking care of my needs, I, you know, I want to just, I'm done. I don't go, I don't price shop, you know, I just, I stay there. And then I think as human beings, you know, we're all kind of wired to talk about companies or experiences that exceed our expectations. And so that, that idea of getting your, your customers to talk and, and which is, you know, another form of referral, I think is, is actually something we want to do. So those behaviors, no, like trust, try, buy, repeat, refer are, you know, I, I, I kind of, I've been talking about the last few years that I think our job as marketers is not to create or drive demand. It's to organize behavior. And those seven behaviors all have different questions and objectives. I mean, a lot of people refer to them as stages, but you know, we as business owners, we as marketers need to be thinking about how do we guide people on those seven stages or those seven behaviors, knowing that they actually want 
to participate in them? How do we intentionally build campaigns and and processes and uh, initiatives to make sure that we are actually addressing them? You know, an interesting map to that no like, trust, try, buy, repeat, refer is to map the customer's emotional journey along with this. You're sort of doing both in the same. But yeah. I think what we practitioners of like print, promo, digital, direct mail, all, all need to understand better when our customers call us is how will this project or our medium most impact the customer into the next phase of their buyer's journey? How does our campaign help solve the problem, customer's problem at each phase? We once had, when I was a distributor, we once had a billion dollar sales organization. They were a staffing firm as a client and they used co-branded leadership books as a way to build trust with buyers. And it was very effective. They had a $50 budget and we ended up packaging books as sets like John Maxwell series and wrapping them in a custom box. And they used them for very hard to reach executive decision makers. And it was incredibly effective because it built trust in the brand, co-branded with a a very trustworthy name and leadership and began to map that emotion of trust to that particular brand. It was on the other end of the spectrum. And we did thousands of these through the years. I mean, every every year it was a significant campaign. On the other end of the spectrum, we had this crazy potato head campaign. Now, this is going to sound funny, mm-hmm. but on on the the client would deliver to their prospect parts of Mr. Potato Head in pieces and eventually put together an entire potato. It sounds really kind of cheesy, and but what would happen is it delighted the customers, and it, it was it was just used at a different phase. It was meant to get attention, and actually it was it was attached with a print campaign that tied in with the the customer's objective, and it was incredibly successful. Because again, it was sort of helping engage the customer in a very tactile way. I think mostly we just need to think about a lot about intention. And in this audience knows that, believes that. But one thing maybe we don't do enough is sort of map it to which part of the journey is this, is this yeah. project for. You know, it's funny. Can I tell, tell you about a promotional products fail? Yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, then this was me. So I can tell on myself. Right. But, you know, duct tape is a great promotional product. Just. Yeah. I mean, goes with my brand, goes with my name. So I found this company that was packaging. They would take, I don't know how much it was, about eight inches maybe of duct tape with a backer on it. And they'd package it up in these little kits. And the idea was, or, you know, just like a little folded, you know, piece that would fit in your pocket or fit in the glove box. And the idea was that, you know, if you were traveling or if you're in your boat or something, you know, and you had an inner tube that you'd have this kind of, instead of the whole roll, you'd have this little packet of duct tape. Right. And... So I thought, well, this is brilliant. I'll package these up. I have a little, it had a little insert in there. They had my brand and contact information on it. But when the product was done, it resembled the package of a condom. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I did not think of this, but every single person that I handed them to <laughs> did. And so I, you know, I turned it, I turned it around by saying, yes, I just want you to practice safe marketing. <laughs> <laughs> a good, good save. Good save. <laughs> so, sorry, sorry if that was not appropriate for no, you. No, it's fan, no fantastic. No, there's a lot of folks that will have they have a lot of promo fails in their in their bag here too. That reminds me of years and years ago. We we did a we we did branded condoms for a customer, and literally, no joke, the way that you branded them was to put a little card around them. Yeah. But when the supplier, so the condom itself wasn't branded, but it was like a little, like imagine a little matchstick cover. Supplier attached the the logo card. They stapled it, but right through the condom. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh no! 
Whoops. There you go. That is practicing not exactly. <laughs> that that was uh, needless to say, the customer got a full refund for their order. But yeah. <laughs> John, I, you've written uh, switching gears a little bit here. You've written extensively about marketing and business from duct tape marketing, marketing to referral engine SEO, and now this new book's fascinating to me: the self reliant entrepreneur, three hundred sixty six daily meditations to feed your soul and grow your business. It's unique from your other books. It's organized as a daily devotional with 366 entries, one for each day of the year, including leap year. And each day starts with a reading from a transcendentalist era author like Emerson, Willa Cather, one of my all-time favorites, by the way, Walt Whitman, Louise May Alcott, and Thoreau. And it's followed by reflection and application for today's entrepreneur. I loved the the format because I had a similar book by Peter, Peter Drucker that I read through one year called Daily Drucker, which was a great way to pause and start the day. What I love about your book is how it's organized by seasons of the entrepreneur's life, planning, discovering, evolving, and growing, and each month has a theme like creativity or resilience. It would seem at first glance that these transcendentalist authors might not have much in common with today's entrepreneur. About 100 to 150 years ago, it was an incredible time of innovation and exploration. It also seems like this book might find a perfect time today as more and more entrepreneurs emerging sort of conscientious as being using a business as a force for good to steal B Corp's tagline. I mean, you could argue that businesses are becoming more mindful today. How has writing this book changed or impacted the way you view the entrepreneur's life? Sure. So this is a, this is an interesting book because this is part of a practice. It fits right into a practice that I have done for you know some twenty years of kind of having a centering you know daily inspirational read. Self, I think entrepreneurship is one of the greatest self development programs you know, ever created. So this is a, a bit yeah. of I guess a self development book as well. So so I've been writing this book probably for twenty years, and it it in a lot of ways you know it was kind of a culmination of my thinking, you know, my views on, on, you know, how, you know, what it takes kind of from mind, body, spirit to, you know, to get up and do this every day for, yeah. for many years. But it was interesting in writing it in a very, you know, so if you think about it, I studied this stuff or thought about this stuff for 20 years, and then I sat down and wrote a, a book in a year that kind of brought it all together. And, and of yeah. course, intense amount of research to to get the the materials that I curated in there and so it was it was almost like a crash course self development for myself so yeah <laughs> I, I actually feel like I came away and I think a lot of authors will tell you this you know I came away benefiting as much as I think anybody who reads this <laughs> book you know over the course of a year will just in my own kind of relationship to my own business and to my own journey and to maybe even my definition of success you know all those things I think have been a little bit shaped by just immersing myself in kind of this type of thinking yeah. I think it was Wendell Berry who said, we read to know we're not alone. And I think it's that daily connection with those yeah. folks and particularly entrepreneurs that could pick up this book. I'm, I'm saying this mostly from my experience with Drucker. It seemed like every day when I opened up Drucker's book, I was facing a challenge that week with something that he had touched on. Of course, you know, he's one of the great management consultants of all time, but in, in the same can be for your book as well. I can see why that would be a critical practice, daily practice for folks, just to touch what it takes five minutes a day, just to jump in and connect with someone to know we're not alone in this journey for one thing. Yeah. And I, I, it's become a pretty established practice, I think, for a lot of entrepreneurs to have some sort of morning and maybe even evening, you know, ritual where they, right. you know, might journal, they might read something, they might meditate, you know, yeah. do whatever to get themselves kind of going for the day. And then maybe kind of at the end of the day, kind of recap, you know, what they did or what they witnessed or what they're grateful for. And and so yeah. it, it certainly 
it certainly fits into that in some space. Mm. That was a segue into the last question I had, John, but in terms of feedback that you've gotten from other or from entrepreneurs about the book outside of uh, outside of what you just said, are there any other things that have surprised you with regard to feedback from from readers of the book? I don't I, I don't know that that this is a huge surprise, but uh, I am taken aback by how many people read this mid 19th century literature. So 150 years ago, um, you know, literature and say, wow, I, I just can't believe how it sounds like it was written yesterday. You know, yeah. obviously some right. flowery language, there's poetry, there's, you know, some words that are no longer used necessarily on a daily basis. But, you know, when Thoreau talks about the distractions and, and you know, how we have to simplify, you know, it's it's like he's talking about Facebook and right. you know, <laughs> getting off of it. And, right. and many, many people have have made that, uh, that comment. As you read these authors and as you sort of connected with them, who did you discover along the way that really impressed you that you weren't didn't already know? Like maybe we're all familiar with Walt Whitman's poetry, but yeah, did you yeah. come in contact with a few names that kind of blew your mind? Well, there were two two female authors in particular that uh, I, I just wasn't familiar with. A lot of people aren't familiar with because a lot of the the right their writing wasn't really you know showcased at certainly at the time. Anybody who has studied you know feminist literature certainly is familiar with Margaret Fuller who uh, wrote women of the 19th century which was kind of the bible for the 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 women's suffrage movement and then you already mentioned Willa Cather I was actually not that familiar with her yeah. writing uh, other than probably seeing the movie O Pioneers or something right. but I was really struck by you know most of her work is about kind of the land and settling the land and um, a lot of it is in Nebraska and it, it's amazing I, I was really touched by how she uses the land almost as a character in, in all of her works. And, and so she was somebody I had not read and probably, uh, you know, so it fits into that uh, discovery. I have an idea if you guys don't mind for uh, a minute and a half, why don't I read today's entry? Yeah, let's do it. Great idea. Because we've been talking about the concept, but let's give people a free sample, shall we? There we go. <laughs> so this is, we're recording this on February 24th. So I just grabbed February 24th. Every uh, day has a title and then a short reading and then my 100, 150 words and then your question. All right. Today's entry is titled Fear and Doubt. Adhere to your own act and congratulate yourself if you have done something strange and extravagant and broken the monotony of a decorous age. It was a high counsel that I once heard given to a young person. Always do what you're afraid to do. That was from Ralph Waldo Emerson's uh, essay, Heroism, written in mm -hmm. 1841. Face the fear and do it. In addition to sounding a bit like a marketing slogan, that statement has become standard advice for entrepreneurs. Before you push it aside is yet another thing you're supposed to do. Sit with this idea. Fear and doubt show up to tell you something. You can choose to ignore them, but they probably won't go away. Learn to tune into your fears and doubts. Witness them, study them, laugh at them, and then you just might become a bit more fully aware of your true path. Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art, the book-length version of today's reading, offers this nugget to chew on. Are you paralyzed with fear? That's a good sign. Fear is good. Like self-doubt, fear is an indicator. Fear tells us what we have to do. Hmm. Your challenge question today, what scares you the most about your journey? Why? Mm, love I love it. I love it. And that's a great book, The War of Art. Ooh, it blew my mind. I read it about 10 years ago. Yeah, such a good it, book. Uh, it, he, he's like a take no prisoners kind of author that Stephen Press. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's, uh, he's also a, a pretty well noted screenwriter. Yes. 
Who wrote uh, the Legend of Beggar Vance? Remember that movie? Yeah. Oh yeah. That's right. That's right. Wow. Well, John, that uh, that's uh, an amazing amazing reading there, and I think is great motivation uh, for for folks to consider picking it up. And you know what I love about that concept, and you've written lots of books, but what I love about this new concept is that it's it's a very brief amount of time you have to invest every day to read it, and it's great to consider these consider these challenges. And I think that even though we take a lot of risks here at our day jobs, I think it's a great reminder to know that sometimes we need to step outside our comfort zones and do the things that we're most fearful for, or fearful of. And I think Bobby alluded to this too. I mean, this literature was written at a time when we were on the cusp of the Civil War. We women were trying to get the 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 right to vote. We were trying to abolish the legal act of slavery. And it was kind of the first countercultural period in America where people were finally Mm -hmm. starting to say, you know, Maybe we don't have to listen to our politicians or to our preachers or to even our parents. Maybe we have to follow our heart. And I and I think that, you know, historians talk about the, you know, things repeating themselves uh, historically. And I, I feel like we are at some sort of crossroads right now. And uh, yeah. the, the, the idea of a more self-reliant entrepreneur, I think, might just be the the answer to uh, to maybe healing some of the divide that seems to be pretty prevalent. Yeah, it's a great point. Great point. John, thanks for joining us today. Uh, it's funny how this conversation started out with a tweet. It, it, it's amazing to me, though, that we're all on the same page when it comes to effective and, and purpose. We went from purpose-driven promotions and making sure that we do that to purpose-driven lives to the purpose-driven entrepreneur's life. And I think that's just a great summation of where we've been today in the conversation. You know, be intentional, be purposeful. And that's where we're all going to find much more joy in the journey. Thanks for joining us, John. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Skewcast. Be sure to keep up with our latest content by subscribing to Skewcast on iTunes or to our blog at community.commonskew.com. Until next time, friends. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.